I spoke here a couple of weeks ago, uh, I talked about how the, the, the basic message that the Lord has given me over the last seven years, a message that has been increasing in intensity, is that God is demanding, not asking, he's demanding a holy church. He's demanding that there needs to be wholesale change in the way we are as Christians and the way the church operates. I suggested that just as I gave the picture, if you remember, of an iceberg, a huge iceberg turning over, overturning, and that as a result of that overturning, there were all waves, huge waves, tsunami waves flowing everywhere. And I was suggesting that ever since God gave me this, this word seven years ago, that we've seen all of these waves flowing out over the world, things like the COVID epidemic, uh, political uh, problems in America, climate change is one that I, that I could have mentioned as well, which is affecting our, our weather patterns. Um, war, unprecedented war in, uh, in Europe, political upheavals around the world. All of these things, I believe, are the waves that are coming out. And the, real re the reality we need to be aware of is that God is overturning the systems of our world in a once-in-a-lifetime, certainly once-in-a-lifetime, probably more like once-in-a-500-year type revolutionary event. And the world, as we know it, is changing. And that because the world is changing, we need to be aware that it is God who is doing it. He's not responsible for the waves. You know, he's, he's not causing COVID. He's not causing wars. And, but the wars, are, they are the natural consequences of God doing these things. And it is out of that that we need to become a holy people. Now, I've called this message, in a, as a, as a follow-up message, I've called it the key. And the reason I've called it that is because I believe, I've okay, had the next slide, the next slide too. I believe that this is the key, what I'm going to share to you today, to understanding everything that you need to know about what is going on. There's one single principle that is the key to understanding the heart of God at the current time, why we are in turmoil, why he is demanding holiness from his church, and how we need to respond to that. Just one thing that you need to understand. If you understand, if you grasp this, you'll understand the rest. It'll all come fairly naturally. So what is that key? It's found simply in the last words of the, of the book of First John, where it says this, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Strange way to finish a letter. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. So let's look. Do we have water here, by the way? I'm feeling a bit dry. Let's start by digging into what it actually means by the sin of idolatry. And I want to throw up on the screen... Some fairly, a fairly basic scripture, the start of the Ten Commandments, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. Uh, the first two commandments given by God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. And you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. 
For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Strong words which we're all familiar with. In response to that, I hear many of us saying, and I would have said this myself uh, not so long ago, that's fine, but how does this apply to us? I mean, we're Christians here. We're not idolaters. We worship God. We don't hate God. We love him. Now, that is true, yes, mostly it is true. However, there is a subtlety in these words that we need to be aware of because there's actually two forms of idolatry that are talked about in this first two commandments, the first commandment and the second commandment. The first form of idolatry, which we're in no danger whatsoever, I believe, of committing, is the the form of actually worshipping a foreign god. That's addressed to people who are pagan, who don't believe in God and who actually... Uh, worship a different God. That's simply, you shall have no other gods before me. It's saying simply, you shall worship only one God. Now, we are Christians. We don't, I expect, violate that commandment. But the second commandment is a lot more problematic because it's actually talking about a situation where somebody has already come to believe in God, has already become a Christian, but Instead of worshipping God as he really is, they set up an image of God and worship that image. Look what he says. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. It's not talking about someone that doesn't believe in God. It's talking about someone that does believe in God but then forms an image of God and substitutes that image for the true God. Now note the words, the absolute words that are used in this passage to describe that sort of behaviour. It says, it's the only sin for a start which has consequences flowing on to the subsequent generations. The problem with this form of sin of idolatry is that the main bulk of the result of it, the consequence of it, is not felt by you, it's felt by your children and your grandchildren and subsequent generations. I chose this New King James Version to tr- translation here because it actually uses the word visit. You visit the sins on the children to the third and fourth generations. Uh, if you read, the, uh, for example, the, the New International Version, it says punish, uh, which is not a very good translation. The Hebrew word actually talks about consequences coming. It's not saying that God punishes children for what their fathers do. It's saying that when we sin in this particular way, that there are consequences and that those consequences are borne by subsequent generations. A different concept, they're natural consequences, right? Which, but they're consequences that arise because of the parent's sin. Uh, and it describes the action of those who do this, and the reason why God allows these consequences, that the act of setting up an idol is actually an act of hatred towards God. So when we as believers, or when the people of God in days of old, set up idols, they might think that they were honouring God, but actually they were hating him. And he responds by allowing consequences to flow into their lives. 
We need look no further than the story of Jeroboam to understand what those consequences were. I told you about what happened in Jeroboam's reign. He reigned for 22 years. His kingdom was uh, relatively peaceful and prosperous. And most people would have said at the time that his reign, his actions uh, were justified because of the circumstances that the uh, ends justified the means. Um, Hard times require hard solutions. Let me tell you what the consequences were according to the scriptures, according to what the prophetic witness in the scripture was. The first consequence is that Jeroboam had a son and the son died of illness. Not so dramatic. But God actually said about this son, I'm allowing him to die and be buried because he's the only one in your whole family that's not a disgraceful person. The rest, I'm going to feed to the dogs. He's the only one that's going to get a decent burial because he's the only one that any good has been found in. That was the first consequence. The second consequence was that in the generation following Jeroboam, his whole family was wiped out in a few days later. Wiped out the whole of his family. So he was left without descendants, without sons or daughters, without children, without anything. And of course, we all know how important that sort of uh, uh, future was in the ancient world. We also know that precisely 36 years after the death of Jeroboam, you can add up the dates, 36 years after that, so one generation. This is one generation, right? One generation after the death of Jeroboam, Israel slipped into a deeper sin because on that day, a man called Ahab came to the throne. There were three coups over that 30-year period, so complete political instability. Three coups, eventually the, the, the dynasty of Omri came to the power and uh, Ahab was the son of Omri. the process of decline so that now not only were they not worshiping, not only were they worshiping idols, they were worshiping foreign gods. <clears throat> now at a human level it's easy to see how the consequences follow. Because the reality is that when you worship God in the way that God prescribes, that God is actually present. When, when we come here to church and we have wonderful praise and worship like we did this morning, people come in and they say, wow, God is really here. Christianity is worthwhile. But if, on the other hand, you replace that with a different form, right, where God is not present, you replace it with a substitute, like Jeroboam did, a golden calf, then God's no longer present. Now, what do we know about children, right? Those who are parents, you know, children are very realistic. If you take your children to a church and God's not there, what are your children going to say? They're going to say, I'd rather be playing video games. They're going to say, I'd rather be playing golf, than what I would say. When God is not there in your worship, when you are just playing games, children are going to turn away. And so one generation after Jeroboam, we can understand, after a generation of worship that was just showed, which wasn't of God, the children's generation said, 
nothing in this worship of Jehovah, nothing, nothing in it. What other alternatives are there? And along came Jezebel saying, worship Baal, he's more real. And so the whole nation, one generation later, turned to Baal worship. And there it was all downhill. The prophet, about a hundred years ago, the prophets Amos and Hosea, talked about what happened in their day, how the nation was still prosperous, they were rich, but the ruling classes were oppressing the poor, sexual immorality was rampant, idol worship was everywhere, people cared nothing for their neighbours, there was greed, abuse, every sin known to man was there in their kingdom. In fact, to use the analogy I used earlier, just as both the Christian left and the Christian right of today's language would have approved of Jeroboam because of his results, both the Christian left and the Christian right would have been appalled by what was happening a hundred years later in the time of the prophets Hosea and uh, Amos. But what the Bible teaches us is that those things, those evils which were manifest at that time were the natural, inevitable consequences of Jeroboam's sin. Let me show up on screen the long-term result of this, some 250 years after Jeroboam, the consequence of which we read in 2 Kings chapter 17. This is what the, the prophet said was the result. When the Lord tore Israel away from the house of David, they made Jeroboam son of Nebat their king. Jeroboam enticed Israel away from following the Lord and caused them to commit a great sin. The Israelites persisted in all the sins of Jeroboam and did not turn away from them until the Lord removed them from his presence as he had warned through all the servants the prophet. So the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria, and they are still there. Consequences of the sin of idolatry. And this is not just something which is in the, in the olden days in the Bible. I have seen this firsthand at work. I could tell you of a family where the grandfather, as a Christian man, was abusive to his children. And, and not only was he abusive, but he said, this is God's will. I, you know, that, that's the way it should be. Of his children, one died. The rest were horribly, horribly damaged. The second generation of about 15 or so grandchildren, there's only two who are Christians. One committed suicide. In the third generation, there's a further suicide. None of the children, none of the grandchildren speak to any of the others. Devastation of relationship. Consequences of idolatry today. Why is there such terrible consequences from this sin. Let's explore for a moment what's actually going on 
in the situation where idolatry takes place. The heart of idolatry. What is the heart of idolatry? In Ezekiel chapter 14, a time when there was idolatry was a, a, a running rampant in, this, in, in Judah, the prophet talks about that these men, he said, have set up idols in their hearts. So it was no longer just a matter of painting a graven image. They progressed the idea that it was the idol was set up in the person's heart and that what was going on in the heart was actually being manifest in what they were actually doing with their hands. So let's think for a moment of what's going on in the hearts of men and women who set up idols. Well, the first thing is, let's just take the simplest case where somebody that doesn't know God and they worship foreign gods. Now, if you've ever been to the British Museum or to the Rome or Paris or any of these other places where they, where they have... Uh, uh, idols from, from the ancient world, you'll see that basically the sort of things that, uh, that people used to worship, the, very, you know, ancients, the ancients were very simplistic in their things. They, they had hopes or fears or dreams uh, and, they, and, and, and that was what they worshipped. So you can see those images of, of female goddesses who represent either fertility or sex. You, know, the, you, know, you see male gods who represent power or strength. Victory over your enemies. This is what you find from the cultures of Babylon and Rome and, and Greece, the ancient cu- cultures. So at that level, what's going on in the heart, first of all, is that human beings, you and I, have dreams. We have hopes. We have fears, things that we're afraid of, bogeymen. And it is natural in the heart of sinful man to worship those things uh, and ascribe divine powers to those gods. So that's the first level, when people don't know God, where they don't know any better. It says in the New Testament that God forgives such ignorance these days because they didn't know any better. But when people don't know God, they set up an idol in their hearts. But let's take it a step further when we have people like you and me who have come to know God. We've experienced God firsthand. He's come into our lives. I can remember 40 years ago when I first encountered Jesus. What an amazing thing it was. We're we just you're sort of aware of how much love and how, much, how, how wonderful our God is. You get this revelation on the inside of how great he is. But you see, that is often, that revelation is often in conflict with this other side of us, these hopes and fears and dreams that we have for this life. There's a tension, a conflict going on. The question is, who's going to win? Are we going to surrender our hopes, our dreams, our fears at the cross? Are we going to worship God the way he really is? But the other side, the other temptation is there to actually make God fit in with our agenda. And that is what happens with idolatry. You see, God is holy. The word holy, the original meaning of that word is different, set apart or different. So when the Bible says that God is holy, it says that he is so different, so wonderfully different to anything you or I could ever dream of or imagine. He is so full of love, so full of power. We sang that song before, how great is our God. When you meet him, you know how different he is to anything you've ever encountered. I met Jesus 40 years ago, as I said, and really the summary of my life since then is that I've spent 40 years of catch-up trying to make myself worthy 
of the revelation I received on that day in a single moment of time. And I still have an eternity to go. Every day, more things to learn. And if eternity goes on for a million years, every day of that million years will be something new to learn about the wonders of our God. The angels around his throne, they cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Heaven and earth is full of his glory. They're crying out, different, different, different. He is so different to what you think, to what you imagine. Being different means he's unknown. And being unknown, we don't like things that are unknown. It's not humanly natural to... We don't cope with that well, do we? We like what we're familiar with. We read back, go back in Exodus, we read that God visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children because he is a jealous God. What does that mean? What is he jealous of? We read the rest of the scripture, we find out what he's jealous for. He's jealous for his glory. He says, the whole earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord as the oceans cover the sea. That's a lot of glory. This glory has been given to us, the church, as we look in the face of Jesus Christ. We are meant to be transmitters, transmitters of that glory. Right? He says in Isaiah, I will not share my glory with another. I will not share my glory with another. Because God knows that the only way any human being can be saved is if we are filled with the glory of God and allow that glory to change us from our own puny, lowly estate to the, to the image of Jesus Christ. That's the only hope for any human being. He will not share his glory with another because the whole destiny of you and me, the human race, depends upon that glory. So going back to what I was saying, so we have a situation where we have a, a believer, let's, let's call them a Christian, it doesn't matter whether an Old Testament believer or a New Testament believer, but someone who's encountered God and they had their own hopes and dreams and fears and they encountered God and there's this tension and they have a choice, which way are we going to go? And this person chooses to go the way of idolatry. They choose to reject the revelation that God has provided of what he's like and project their own hopes and fears and dreams, their own ambitions, into the image of God in the form of an idol. We saw the example of the golden calf. I said it's a, the picture of the golden calf is not... I used to think that a golden calf is a picture of a little, a little baby calf, you know, saying, bah, no, no, moo, moo, with its mother's milk. No, it would have been a six-month-old bullock. You want to see a picture of what, what, what it was. It's more likely to have been the bulls running in Pamplona or a bullfighting bull. Huge, bulky animal, full of power and strength because the people had just been rescued out of slavery. What greater honour could you do to God than to portray God as a strong bull, the strongest animal they knew, who rescued them from the evils of Pharaoh? And in that extent, one can say that in that one particular aspect... God is like a young bull. But think about how far short the picture falls. Do you want to have a relationship with a young bull? No, you don't. The one thing which is actually important to God, he rescued his people so that they could have relationship with him, is not covered by that analogy. 
And a young bull is renowned for virility. So it's hardly surprising, is it, that the inevitable consequence straight after the incident of the golden calf in Exodus was an orgy. We become what we worship, right? We become who we serve. So the question then becomes, well, the issue then becomes, what I'm saying is, idolatry is an offence against the glory of God. That is why it is serious. And the essence of idolatry is that you not only are sinning, doing something wrong, but you are projecting that sin into God and saying that is what God is like. So let's show the next slide. You can see the definition I've applied. The heart of idolatry is refusing to submit to God who really is and instead fashioning an image of God in the shape of your own experiences, either your hopes or your fears, and then calling that image God and serving it rather than God. Going back to the story I told of my own experience, the, the, the man who was an elder in the church who was abusive. To be abusive is one thing, right? Many of us have experienced abuse. It's a terrible, terrible sin. I'm not putting it down. But when you then project that, that abuse onto God and say, I am doing this because God wants me to do that, the God of the Bible, that is a totally different degree of wrong. You don't understand? It is not only physical and emotional abuse, it becomes spiritual abuse. And it is an abuse of the glory of God. And God says, I will not share my glory with another. So, the sin of idolatry, the most serious sin in the book, the sin which actually has consequences down through the generations, destroys lives, destroys families... What are some of the idols we see today? If you want to take photos of the next three slides, I don't want to talk about them in great detail, uh, but here's just some ideas that I thought of in the last couple of days to say what are some of the idols that we see today which are around in the Western world? There are probably many others. I've lumped them together in groups because the groups being what desire is there undergirding these idols. Remember how we said that the source of an idol is uh, you have an idea, a hope or a dream or a fear and you substitute that into God. So the logical way, of, I think, of, of, of understanding those is to look at what the, the desires are that we have and how that, what some of the consequences are when we allow those desires to dominate. So the first thing is I've got the, the desire to be right. We all want to be right. The fact is we know that we're not, but you know, it's a great desire we all have. It's a fairly natural desire to want to be shown to be right. Um, I put there that three idols that arise there are religious or self-righteous pride. Plenty of that in, in some areas of, of Christianity. Denominationalism, where people separate into different denominations. I'm a Pentecostal, I'm a Presbyterian, I'm an Anglican, I'm a Baptist, and they separate themselves because if I'm a Baptist and you're a Presbyterian, well, you know, I must be right and you must be wrong, so we've got to make sure that true of that. Our divisions in the church, Paul talks about that very sarcastically in 1 Corinthians 11, where he says, 
to the church in, that was very divided. He said, of course there's got to be divisions in the church, otherwise how's anyone to know which one God approves of? I take that to be sarcasm. The desire to be in control. Uh, what I call there, the two idols I've listed there are self-serving ways to interpret the Bible. I, I use the word extreme a few times because I don't want to get into theological uh, complications of what is right and what is wrong. Fundament, there's fun, there's a, a good sort of fundamentalism, there's a bad sort of uh, uh, fundamentalism. But, you know, it's where, where things are taken to extremes, where, for example, in the case of liberalism, where they so project their own views of, uh, of God or the Bible that, you know, for example, that miracles don't happen, and they project that and say that's what the Bible is actually all about. When it gets to that extreme, it's idolatry. Similarly, on the other side, when people become so fixated on individual interpretations of the scripture that, uh, that they basically become idolising the Bible. Now, there are extremes there. The desire to be popular. We all want to be popular. Who doesn't want to be popular? The cult of personality. Plenty of that in the church. Lowering the standards for being a Christian. We'll talk about that in a moment. The desire to belong. Interesting one, that. I put in Christian and national. I'll talk about that in a moment as well. Um, the desire for worldly success, greed, is described in the two Testaments as a form of idolatry. Extremes of prosperity teaching, again, and, and healing. I, again, I believe in healing, I believe in prosperity, I believe God wants to bless his people, but they are not the ends of the gospel. God blesses his people with these things as they serve him. He does not bless you. In spite of, you know, he does not bless you so that you can live for your own, your own, uh, your own glory, your own, your own uh, purposes. And one that I've talked about before is dominion theology, which is basically saying the theology which says that God wants to rule over the nations through the church. Extremely toxic. There's two of these that I want to pick up on: uh, Christian nationalism. The elephant in the room. Let me ask you a question. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has never overcome it. Who's that talking about? Do you know where that quote comes from? Jesus. First chapter of John, the glorious introduction to John's gospel how God sent his one and only son into the world, the very image and glory of God, to bring salvation to mankind. He is the light that shines in the darkness. He is the light that no one can ever overcome. He is the light that will save the world. We all agreed? Not according to George Bush. Next. This is a direct quote from one of his speeches on the first anniversary of 9-11. The ideal of America is the hope of all mankind. That hope still lights our way. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Similarly, we all know, who knows the old hymn? There's power, wonder-working power. In what? The blood. The blood of who? The blood of the Lamb. Power to what? To save us from our sins. To redeem us from every evil that's, you know. Do we agree that there is wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb and in nowhere else? Amen. Amen. 
Not according to George Bush again. Next one. This was his State of the Union address, 2003, to the American Congress. The need is great, yet there is power, wonder-working power, in the goodness and idealism and faith of the American people. When I heard of this, I was appalled. I was worse than appalled. I was totally devastated. Because two things need to be borne in mind. First is that George W. Bush is a born-again Christian, allegedly. He's well known to have had a conversion experience and come to Jesus out of drunkenness. And secondly, these comments are parts of speeches given under official circumstances by the representative of the nation. He has literally dozens of speechwriters who craft every word of his speeches to give exactly the right nuance of meaning to reach exactly the right audience that he wants to reach. We know that, don't we? And this is what they came up with. I will not share my glory with another, says the Lord. George W. Bush says, as representative of America, that, I can't even say the word, that the ideal of America is like Jesus coming into the world to save the world from sin. He told the Christians of America that the goodness the goodness of the American people has power, wonder-working power, when the real power is found in the one who saved American people from their wickedness, just like he saved the American people and the rest of us from our wickedness. Because that's the power of the blood, isn't it? When these speeches were given, was it just George W. Bush who said these things? Did I hear around America, around the world, of millions upon millions of Christians tearing their clothes, as they would have done in Old Testament times, and saying, this blasphemy has got to stop? No. Not a word. In fact, when I chased up these quotes, the only reference I found was the person who wrote the article said, made the point that George Bush was more likely than most other presidents to use religious imagery in his messages. Religious imagery. Blasphemy. Idolatry. There, in black and white. I said earlier that God is overturning the powers of this world. And this is not a prophecy, this is simply a statement, I believe, of plain, observable fact. America is on the way out. It has to be. God says, I will not share my glory with another. What is he going to do to a, a nation where 44% of the people claim to be Christians and yet they allow such statements to be made in their, in their name. He will not share his glory with another. He will not share it with George Bush. He certainly will not share it with, with the puny idols that the, 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 of, of American nationalism. If you go back in history, every, it's not just America. You could pick on that. You go back to 1900. You read in the history books that Europe was... Uh, predominantly Christian in those days, and they believed that they 
had, uh, had, had, had conquered the world. They said, we've sent missionaries out to the whole of the world, India and Africa and South America. The work is done. God's, Jesus is going to return any day soon because we've converted the world. Onward, Christian soldiers. But God raised up a prophet in Africa who said that because they abused the people, the, the poor of Africa, you can read about it, I can't remember the guy's name. I think he came from, from uh, Sierra Leone, where Tom comes from. But he said, because they have abused the trust and set up idols in their hearts, they are so, soon to be overcome by a conflagration. And within 10 years, there was World War I. And 30 years after that, there was World War II. And Europe was completely devastated. It is not, it's happened before. Book of Jeremiah says what happens to nations who set themselves up in opposition to God. God sent the prophet down to the, to the, to the, uh, to the, to the pottery yard and he said, have a look at what the potter's doing. And the potter was shaping a pot and, and the potter made a mistake in shaping the pot. And it, was not, and it was marred in his hands. So he took the pot and threw it in the corner and started again. And God said to Jeremiah, you see what this potter has done? He said, that pot are the, represents the nations of the world. I will raise up a nation and I will use that nation for my glory. And so long as it is actually able to be used by me, I will use it. But when that nation raises itself above me, when it becomes marred in my hands, I will throw it away and start again. He did that with Babylon. He did that with Assyria. He did that with every nation that has been top dog. He did it with the British Empire, which no longer exists. And he is doing it again now with America. Every nation that has been top dog will be overthrown because they all raise up this hubris that says, I'm here because of my own strength. And those Christians who are attached to their nation, Christian nationalists, many of them in America, but many in Australia as well, how are they going to respond when, when God overthrows their idol? Leave that to our imaginations. Next slide. Uh, quickly, again... I mentioned one John at the start. This one here is about one thing the church has done over the centuries is lowered the standards of what it means to be a believer. We talked about one John, which took where the final words were, um, keep yourself free from idols. One John was written in a situation where there was a church that was being led astray by false teaching. And these, this false teacher was saying things like, you know, you're not really Christians. I'm the one that, this group over here, we're the ones who are really God's people. You need to follow us. And they were seducing people from leaving the church. And John was writing in response to that. And he says that he's writing in such a way, he said, I'm writing to you so that this is how you can know that if you really are the saved ones. Right? These are the signs, if you like, of what it really means to be a believer. And he expressed that throughout the five chapters of 1 John in a series of absolute statements uh, where he, he basically says, if this is true, it's the truth, and if it's not true, in your case, you're a liar. Here's a list of just half a dozen of them. These are what 
John says it means to be a believer. These are the signs that if you really come from death to life. If you claim to have fellowship with Jesus and yet walk in the darkness, you're a liar. If you say, I know Jesus, but you don't do what he says, you're a liar. If you claim to be in the light but hate your brother and sister, guess what? You're in the darkness, not in the light. If anyone loves the world, you have no love for the Father. No one who lives in Jesus keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. This one, next one, is, is probably the most powerful of all. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot possibly love God whom they have not seen. And the one which I like, if people don't like these words and think, oh, you know, this contradicts what I've been taught, this is what John says at the end. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. What's that do? I want to pretend it's a, it's a mixture of These are the signs of what it means to be a true believer. Putting in simple terms, using the words that uh, I think of Spurgeon, who said this, if your encounter with Jesus has not changed your life and radically changed your life, then it's unlikely to have changed your destiny. Whether it takes a short while or a long while, encountering Jesus has got to change who you are. The church, however, longs to be popular. There are probably somewhere between 5 and 10%, I would imagine, of the population in our society who genuinely are Christians by the New Testament standards. But we'd like to... We, 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 we don't emphasise some of these standards. As I said, in America, 44% of people claim to be born-again Christians. The number is ridiculous. There's not that many people who, who love Jesus. There's not many peop- that many people in America that meet these standards. They're living in deception. In Australia, the same. Many, many people claim to be believers and yet don't come anywhere near meeting these standards, the standards of the Bible. Throughout the Bible, throughout the, the Old Testament, God wanted a smaller group of people rather than a larger group of people. Think about about Gideon going to fight battles against the Midianites. He t- started with an army of tens of thousands. God said, no, it's too many. If you fight the battle with tens of thousands, people will think that it was your strength that did it. So he got rid of it down to 300 people. I only need 300 people, said God, and I can defeat all the Midianites I need. It is not the quantity of the army that counts. It is the quality. And it's the same with the church. God does not need 50% of Australia or 50% of America or 50% of any other country in church on a Sunday to transform the world. He only needs a small number, but they have to be free from idolatry. They have to be serious about who they're serving. It is quality that counts, not quantity. So what do we need to do in response? Well, I've listed four things. The first thing, simply enough, is we have to care. We have to care. In Ezekiel 9, verse 4, Ezekiel heard, the prophet heard the angel of the Lord, heard God speak to, to the angel who was executing judgment 
on the idolatrous nation. And do you know what, do you know what he heard God say? He said, put a mark on the forehead of everyone who grieves and laments because of the wicked things that are happening. And the angel did so. And then he said, spare those and destroy the rest. Spare those and destroy the rest. The first thing is we have to care. I don't care whether you're a right-winger or a left-winger in terms of your Christian politics. The glory of God is more important than any of the issues that both sides of politics talk about. Are you concerned about abortion, sexual immorality in the church? I'm concerned about those things. But I'm more concerned with the glory of God being blasphemed because of idols. Are you concerned about injustice, systematic poverty, all of these sorts of problems entrenched in the society? Yes, I am. But I'm more concerned with the glory of God. I'm more concerned with the idols that are in the church. The first thing we have to do is care. The second thing we have to do is understand the priorities of God, which I think goes without. These are the, this is the thing which is most important to God, far more important than any of these other issues. Get it as a priority, get it in our heart. This is what is important. This is why God is overturning the iceberg. Because the nations of the West have proven to be useless to God because we have turned away from the understanding of God to our own idols. And God is overturning the iceberg. Understand the priorities of God. I'm glad that he's doing it. I really am. I'm not glad that it's happening in my generation. I'm not glad that it's happening to my family, my society. But I am zealous for the glory of God. I'm zealous for the kingdom of God. I'm zealous for what God wants to do. And God wants us to be the same. Once we care and we understand the priorities of God, we then need to examine our own hearts. And if we find any idols, we need to repent. That goes without, without saying. And finally, idols need far more dealing with than simply repentance. We need to burn them. Name your idols and burn them. Idols have power, but only as long as they remain unnamed. Provide an opportunity now for us. If God has spoken to you about anything in your own life, again, I'm not, a, I'm not big on the idea of immediate response. Something like this is too important to be worried about, immediate responses. But if God has spoken to you and you want to deal with an issue, if you've identified a hope or a dream or a fear in your life which you've projected onto God and become an idol for you, maybe one of the ones on the list that I shared, maybe a completely different one, if you're ready to repent and turn of that, if you want to name your idol and burn it, I want you to come over here at the end of the service while we sing. We have a box of matches, we have a notepad, we have pencils. What I want you to do, if God has spoken to you in that way, write on a piece of paper, it's totally between you and God, no one's going to read what you write, totally personal, write on that bit of paper the name of your idol and lay it at the foot of the cross. And having laid it at the foot of the cross, take a match and burn it. Burn it in front of your eyes and say, that is what I'm doing to the idols. I will not serve that idol one day longer.
I will not serve, I will not share my glory with another. If you do that, now there's probably need as well at the same time to talk to someone. uh, We have leaders in this church who are able to counsel, um, but that's totally a a separate matter between you and God. So as the musicians come up and, and, and play, that's what I encourage you to do. Turn away from the sins, the idolatry that's in our, in our society, that's in our Christian parts of our society. We can sing that song that we sang at the start, a wonderful song, How Great Is Our God, How Great Is Our God, and How Puny, How Terrible Are Our Idols, but How Great Is Our God, and We Will Serve Him. <laughs>